Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Florida Project, Zora Neale Hurston. Despite all that talk of the new Negro, the Harlem Renaissance was always intended to have a basis in traditional Black culture. The leading theorist of the Renaissance, Alain Locke, thought that the movement would be distinguished by a folk temperament raised to the levels of conscious art. Folk art, he said, is always despised and rejected at first, but generations after it flowers again and transcends the level of its origin. As both of these quotations show, Locke believed that such material as folk tales and folk music offered an aesthetic resource, but one that needed to be refined or transmuted into productions of which the folk themselves would never be capable. For this to work, someone was going to have to dig up all that raw material. Numerous collections of Negro folktales duly appeared during the time of the Renaissance. A study by Leonard Deepiven counts nine of them between 1922 and 1930, all of them edited by white scholars. Black intellectuals had a mixed response to this outpouring of anthropological reportage. The poet County Cullen complained that such works often put sordid details of poor Black life before the public. These were, he said, things that African Americans already know but take no pride in, while white readers might be confirmed in their racist attitudes. George Schuyler, on the other hand, whom we met in the context of his debate with Langston Hughes over the concept of Negro art, called one collection of folktales a revelation of the humor, wit, intelligence, philosophy, hopes, and fears of the humble Negro peasant. You might notice that his reaction anticipates the later acknowledgement of ethnography as a resource for uncovering the philosophy of traditional societies in Africa itself. You'll also have noticed that the whole debate presupposes an outsider's perspective on the African-American folk. Indeed, a man like Alan Locke, born in Philadelphia and then trained at Harvard and Oxford, didn't know what it was to sit on a porch in the summer heat of the Deep South, trading comic tales about how slaves outwitted their masters. But he and the other thinkers of the Renaissance could now learn about this at second hand, from books. Alternatively, they might go to a party where stories would be told by one of the other guests, Zora Neale Hurston. She hailed from Eatonville, Florida, but had come north to study, becoming the only black student at Barnard College. She was an entertaining presence at functions put on by Carl von Fechten, who was deeply involved in the Harlem Renaissance as both patron and author. Hurston also came to know the anthropologist Franz Boas, who encouraged her to build on her childhood understanding of black folkways by approaching this tradition as a social scientist. Supported first by Boas and Carter G. Woodson, and later by the white patron Charlotte Osgood Mason, Hurston returned south to, as she herself put it, collect Negro folklore. Her first trip in 1927 was a failure. With her customary flair for language, she admitted that she did not manage to collect enough to make a flea a waltzing jacket. She put this down to the fact that her time away had already made her an outsider to her own culture. She approached her interview subjects like an interviewer, as an anthropologist from New York rather than as a peer. When she interviewed an old man and got nothing useful out of the encounter, she resorted to plagiarizing another ethnographer's report about him. She would return to write more fully and originally about this same source later. 
This ethical lapse was not made known until Robert Hemingway's biography of Hurston, which appeared in 1977, just as she was being rescued from obscurity thanks to the enthusiasm of the novelist, Alice Walker. It's a disappointing moment in her career, even if we bear in mind that Hurston may not have expected the piece to be published and only to go into Woodson's collected files. Given that Hurston is now most famous as a novelist, we may easily forget that she did see herself as an anthropologist, at least in part. She said that she hoped her work would stand up to scientific scrutiny and that her writing would give a true picture of Negro life at the same time as it entertains. She produced straightforward ethnographic studies, notably a long piece called Hoodoo in America. This was the first study by an African-American author of the folk magical practices that could be found in the Caribbean and Southern United States, where, as she emphasizes, it was indeed called Hoodoo and not Voodoo. Her work provides us with more echoes of themes we discussed in our study of pre-colonial philosophy in Africa. For example, Hurston's account of so-called hags in the Bahamas matches with ideas about witchcraft common in Africa. In fact, she says herself that the beliefs she is studying came originally from Africa, though they have been modified by contact with white civilization and the Catholic Church. One striking illustration is a spell she describes for killing a person, which includes a recitation from the Book of Job. Hurston's training in anthropology encouraged her to see Christian rituals as being on a par with hoodoo. In a letter to Boas, she even suggested that practices of the Catholic Church might be considered as extensions of pantheism, with the Holy Spirit serving as an echo of the deification of fire. On another occasion, she took umbrage at the way that Christians use what she called sympathetic magic in their own church ceremonies, but then laugh at conjure, conjure being another word for folk magic. As this remark shows, she wanted not just to describe hoodoo, but to defend its cultural value. More than that, she sometimes found herself believing it. In her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, she said that a ceremony that involved boiling a live cat and then tasting its bones had a powerful effect on her. It took months for me to doubt it afterwards. Hurston's nuanced approach to folk material, both participant and observer, both scientist and entertainer, is on show in her book, Mules and Men. It was completed in 1930, but not published until 1935, with a short preface by Boas. He praised the way that Hurston was able to enter the homely life of the Southern Negro as one of them, but this is belied to some extent by the book itself. Hurston presents the material from a first-person perspective, telling us of how she arrived in Florida to do her research as both an insider and an outsider. She was recognized and welcomed by the people of Eatonville, but tells us she failed to understand local cultural references. She was puzzled by an invitation to a toad dance, which turned out to be a game where boys choose girls from behind a curtain, being able to see only the tips of their toes and by an offer of coon dick, which proved to be a strong homemade drink that Hurston could barely choke down. This is a cunning bit of authorial self-presentation. It situates Hurston as the ideal mediator, a woman with one foot, or toe, in the world of the folk, another in the world of New York's socialites and anthropologists. Hurston is enough of an insider to overcome what she calls the featherbed resistance of her subjects, by which she means that they evade inquiry from white anthropologists without ever being rude or confrontational. Laughter and pleasantries are offered, but no information. 
yet she can also take an outsider's perspective on the colorful and outlandish stories that Southern Black people called lies, seeing them through what she called the spyglass of anthropology. This perspective reveals that, as she put it in a short essay on the topic, folklore is the arts of the people before they find out that there is any such thing as art. This fits nicely with Locke's account of the difference between folk art and modern art. The former is unselfconsciously authentic, while the latter involves a deliberate, if implicit, stance on its own status as art. Hurston chafed against the expectations of her patrons because they wanted her to deliver information about that authentic folk art without taking the further step of creating self-conscious art of her own. But it was a step she was determined to take. This is already shown by the ostentatiously literary style of mules and men, and then more dramatically by her most famous work, the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God. As in mules and men, the narrative voice is carefully crafted. A frame outside the main narrative establishes that the central character, Janie, is telling her own story to a friend. Yet within the narrative, the voice seems to be more that of Hurston herself, an omniscient narrator with a penchant for vivid folk expression, a tendency that grows as the novel builds towards its tragic climax. To avoid spoiling the novel for you, we won't say anything about the end, or even much about its plot, save to say that it tells of Janie's life with three men, an abusive first husband named Logan Killix, an ambitious second one named Joe Starks, and finally her true love, Virgil Tea Cake Woods. The novel's power comes in part from its incorporation of the sort of vivid folk material reported in Mules and Men. In a few cases, the same stories are even put into the mouths of Hurston's characters. There are oblique references to hoodoo, for instance a root doctor consulted by Joe Starks when he falls ill. It has even been speculated that Janie herself may be inspired by a Haitian voodoo goddess named Ezili. The novel was written just as Hurston was doing research in the Caribbean. Her book about Haiti, Tell My Horse, which includes her famous discussion of the use of a poison brought over from Africa to turn people into zombies, was published only a year later. But the most memorable folk elements in Their Eyes Were Watching God are found in the banter between characters as they gossip, offer advice, and play the dozens by trading insults. One of the great pleasures of the novel is its evocative and language-bending dialogue, as when Joe Starks asks where the mayor of a town is and is told, use a mite too previous for that, us ain't got none yet. A few pages later, someone complains that Starks' own speech is pretentious. He talks to unlettered folks with books in his jaws. Hurston has chosen to render all this in a phonetically transcribed dialect, so that, for instance, the words of and uh are both written uh, uh. This policy is consistent from her anthropological studies to her novels, and is something over which she took great care. Other collections of folktales were criticized for their inaccurate representation of dialect, and for attempting such phonetic spelling at all. Du Bois and Cullen both expressed their distaste for it. But Hurston was determined to get the music of Southern Black speech onto the page. She took notes on this, observing, for example, that the word you changes its sound to y, but only when it is the object and not subject of a verb. Nearly every character in the book, even Joe Starks with the books in his jaws, talks like this. Hurston does not use dialect to differentiate Black from white characters for the simple reason that there are almost no white characters. 
Her aim is to show the richness and also the diversity of Southern Black culture, from the inside, as it were. Race is nonetheless a theme in the novel. As a child, Janie sees a photo of herself and realizes for the first time that she is Black. And in the third act of the novel, the light-skinned Janie encounters another light-skinned woman, Mrs. Turner, who disapproves of her taking up with the darker tea cake. Mrs. Turner agrees with white racists in hating darker Black people, for whom she uses the N-word, and says that people like Janie and herself ought to class off. But with the white population being, with one horrifying exception towards the end of the novel, largely a distant threat lurking well offstage, the main conflicts of the novel are between black women and black men. All of Janie's partners beat her, even the usually loving tea cake, who finds that being able to whip her reassured him in possession. It's been well observed that Janie grows in strength through the novel, not by escaping her vulnerability, that is apparently impossible for a black woman in this society, but by finding ways to use her vulnerability as a source of power. In one scene, she listens to men talking about hitting their wives and calls them to account. It's so easy to make yourself out God Almighty when you ain't got nothing to strain against but women and chickens. Tellingly, when she finally stands up to her second husband, Starks, and berates him in front of a crowd of people, the narrator compares this to stripping a woman in the street. Janie has, says the narrator, robbed him of his illusion of irresistible maleness. One of the most famous passages in the novel brings together the themes of race and gender. Here, Janie's grandmother shares her view of the distribution of power. Honey, the white man is the ruler of everything as far as I've been able to find out. Maybe it's someplace way off in the ocean where the black man is in power, but we don't know nothing but what we see. So the white man throw down the load and tell the N-word man to pick it up. He pick it up because he have to, but he don't tote it. He hand it to his women folks. The N-word woman is the mule of the world, so far as I can see. Readers of Hurston's Mules and Men will recognize this metaphor, the heavy load passed from white man to black man to black woman, as one that Hurston heard on her folklore collecting trips. The metaphor of the black woman as mule of the world gains an added resonance later in the novel when the town folk find entertainment in tormenting a mule. Starks, the wealthiest man in town, buys the beast just so he can free it, and Janie praises him for this. It's as if he is the king of something. The irony is, of course, that he is far less concerned with his own wife's liberation. Whereas Logan and Tea Cake are characterized mostly as more or less attentive lovers, Hurston uses the character of Starks to make points about economic progress and racial uplift. He is ambitious in his plans for his all-black town. Indeed, his failures as a husband stem partially from the fact that he prioritizes this project above Janie. Coming to the novel from the background of earlier Africana thought, it leaps off the page that Starks represents the ideas of Booker T. Washington. He embraces capitalism and, more generally, the value system of white society something that arouses both admiration and hostility from other residents of the town. Hurston's own sympathies seem to lie squarely with Tea Cake, who brings Janie to the muck, a swampy part of Florida where they make money through manual labor like bean harvesting. It may be a mite heavy-handed that Hurston chooses Woods as Tea Cake's last name. In this precarious setting, Janie discovers something like happiness by embracing the camaraderie and cooperative spirit she finds among the poor black folk, until fate intervenes. 
To find out what happens, you'll have to read the book or, you know, look it up online. Given Hurston's seller reputation today, it's a surprise to learn that both mules and men, and their eyes were watching God, received a mixed reception at the time. One complaint was that her representation of black folklore was too relentlessly upbeat. The poet and critic Sterling Brown said that mules and men should be more bitter. It would be nearer the total truth. Bitterness was not really Hurston's style, though. She once said, I am not tragically colored. There is no great sorrow damned up in my soul. On the subject of segregation in the South, she once joked that it did not make her angry, but only astonished. How can any deny themselves the pleasure of my company? It's beyond me. With his grim ending and physical violence, their eyes were watching God could hardly be accused of undue cheer. But Richard Wright saw it as lacking any political message. He wrote that her characters swing like a pendulum in that safe and narrow orbit in which America likes to see the Negro live between laughter and tears. Most hurtfully, Hurston's friend and ally, Alain Locke, wrote a rather mixed review saying that the novel was folklore fiction at its best, but nothing more than that. Hurston responded furiously that Locke knows less about Negro life than anyone in America. I will send my toenails to debate him on what he knows about Negroes and Negro life. The inadequate responses to her book suggest that these critics did not really understand what Hurston was trying to achieve. Her aim was not so much to transform folk art into something new, as Locke urged, but to celebrate it, entering into this world as fully as Janie does when she moves to the muck with tea cake. Or for that matter, as Hurston herself did, when she began as a detached ethnographer and wound up lying naked for three days on a snakeskin as part of a hoodoo ritual. One might think of her achievement as the reverse of Locke's preferred aesthetic, not adding a modern perspective to the art of the folk, but leaving behind her hard-won perspective as a New York sophisticate in order to inhabit the life of her own people more fully and authentically. Hurston wrote once that folklore is the boiled-down juice of human living, and her novel offers a strong dose of that juice. While she touches on other themes like race and domestic violence, her aim is ultimately to depict the inner life of the people whose lives shape and are shaped by folklore. She explained this decades later in an essay called What White Publishers Won't Print. Now writing in 1950, she complained of the limited appreciation shown to literature that shows black life without any overt political message. She says, minorities do think and think about something other than the race problem, that they are very human and internally, according to natural endowment, are just like everybody else. Which means, as she goes on to add, that Negroes are no better nor no worse and at times just as boring as everybody else. An insider who grew up in the world of the poor Negro then became an outsider and an insider again, Hurston was perfectly placed to explore this corner of Black experience and demonstrate its value. While other figures of the Harlem Renaissance hastened to praise the new Negro, Hurston warned against forgetting that Negro's roots. As she put it in a 1934 interview, it would be a tremendous loss to the Negro race and to America if we should lose the folklore and folk music, for the unlettered Negro has given the Negro's best contribution to America's culture. It's worth noting how, in this remark, Hurston couples folklore with folk music. Traditional Black music was a subject of intense fascination for the thinkers of the Harlem Renaissance. Hurston, Locke, and Du Bois all wrote about Negro spirituals, which, along with jazz, 
were arguably the most powerful representation of African-American culture at the time. And at this time, no one person was a more powerful cultural representative than Paul Robeson, an almost unbelievably accomplished man who became world famous for his exploits as an athlete, actor, scholar, activist, and singer of such songs as Old Man River. We'll be featuring him next time as we keep rolling along with the history of Africana philosophy. Thank you.